Good afternoon. I'm Lina Delgado, Executive Director of the Colombian American Association. I would like to welcome you all to our second program of our webinar series, Innovation in the Age of COVID-19, a conversation with Colombian entrepreneurs. For today's webinar, we have one of the co-founders of the Colombian startup, Foodology, which is a dark kitchen concept that is revolutionizing the restaurant industry in Colombia. Dark kitchens are reshaping the restaurant industry and how we eat by developing digital-only brands that don't need a storefront, front of house staff, or dining rooms. This is one of the latest trends in the restaurant industry, and it seems to be gaining popularity. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the dynamic of the food delivery business since it has limited consumers' ability to dine out. These uh, market conditions have further strengthened the case of dark kitchen, especially in Colombia, where quarantine had been stricter. I'm sure that you're going to enjoy this conversation with Daniela Izquierdo, the co-founder of Foodology. Daniela, thank you so much for being with us today. And I would also like to welcome our moderator, Marcela Schein, head of our community of Eureka, who will let the conversation and share with us her views on the entrepreneurial environment as an investor and entrepreneur. Before we start the conversation with Daniela and Marcela, I would like to thank the Colombian American Association's team, Ivan Perea, Lauri Dominguez, Maria Alejandra Churi, and Linda Calvet for helping me to make this event possible. And Camilo Olaya, Director of the Industrial Engineering Department of the Los Andes University for partnering with us for this program. Thank you so much, Camilo, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Lina. Uh, I will be very brief. Uh, I'm very happy to, to be here, and, and I want to thank the Colombian American Association for organizing these webinars, and also thanking for putting your, your eyes on the work of Daniela. And uh, I want to thank also Marcela for moderating this, this webinar. And well, for us, it's just a reason of being very proud to have Daniela sharing her initiative with all the audience here. And uh, we expect that she will inspire uh, new students and, and many people because this gives us uh, reasons for being optimistic in these challenging times we are facing. So thank you again, Lina. Thank you again, Colombian American Association. Thank you, Marcela, and we are very proud and, and I hope everybody will enjoy and will be inspired by the work of Daniela. And uh, then I, I give the word to, to Marcela. Thank you again. Thanks, guys. Nice mm -hmm. to see you. Welcome everyone, Daniela. It's really an honor to have you here. I'll start with a little bit of background. Daniela is the CEO and co-founder of Foodology, which Lena already described as a Colombian startup that aspires to be the largest virtual restaurant chain in Latin America. At Foodology, she's in charge of managing the growth strategy, procurement, ops, finance, and IT. Before co-founding Foodology, Daniela worked at McKinsey & Company. Daniela has a bachelor's in industrial engineering from La Universidad de Los Andes and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Welcome, Daniela. Hi, Marcela, and hi, all the team. Um, from the Colombian American. We just saw sound, Daniela. Um, 
invited me to for to this webinar. Can you hear me? I'm sorry. I don't know if yeah. I'm having a little trouble. Oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, very honored, as Camilo said, to be uh, a student from Universidad Los Andres from the Industrial Engineering Program, uh, and very happy to be representing both Universidad Los Andres. Daniela, we lost your we sure, lost your we sound. lost your sound. And for people to start disruptive businesses. Lina, can you, did you guys lose with Daniela or is it just me? No, it, it, we couldn't hear Daniela at the beginning. So oh. we should. Daniela, we're losing you intermittently. Oh God, let me see what I can do. Um, I'm sorry for this. Are you guys hearing me okay now? Right yes. now you're fine. So just keep an eye out for my uh, my signal if I can't hear you, okay? Got it. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take off my um, AirPods. And I don't know if this is better now. We can hear you. I'll let you know if it's um, if it starts getting spotty. It's okay. Okay. Talk awesome. about innovation in the time of COVID, right? No worries. Um, so Lina, I'm sorry. So Daniela, you were just talking to us. Um, you were a student with Camilo, you said, right? I I was a student with Camilo in a class, if I'm not mistaken, called uh, Sistemas Dinamicos or something very related. It was a very cool class. He's an awesome teacher. And uh, I, I think he's great now heading the department. Fantastic. So tell us, why don't we start with giving everyone a little bit of background about the program that got you so much notoriety at, at Harvard. Um, you gave me a little bit of background, but why don't you tell everyone watching about the program and what made you um, go ahead and apply for this? Yeah, so I, I think the beginning of this whole story starts uh, while I was doing my MBA at HBS. Um, I think it's there when like I first got some of like that entrepreneurial spark inside me thinking like I wanted to do build a business come back to Colombia and actually um, change the way some of the things here work and at HVS uh, entrepreneurship is something that many classes focus on and that we at, at the uh, at HVS they even have like a like a special center for entrepreneurs and that's where they have these types of uh competitions or these types of like benefits for students where they invite both people from like the vc world and ex-founders to be judges and to keep feedback to entrepreneurs that are competing uh, to basically have the most innovative or the most interesting business model um, so this competition, the new ventures competition, it happens every year and it basically includes three different types of competitors. It has people who are current students at the MBA, um, people who uh, used to be students like myself and my business partner and co-founder Juan Guillermo, and then people who are a social impact entrepreneurs. So they have like basically three separate competitions for the three separate segments. It's last year, no, I mean, two years ago, the competition was awesome because people come and pitch right at HBS and all the students we go to, we get to see the pitch and vote, et cetera. This year, obviously for COVID reasons, everything was online, but even like thinking about the experience last year when I was still a student at HBS, 
it, I thought how wonderful would it be to like actually be able to participate in something like the New Ventures competition and get all this exposure to VCs and to um, other startup founders. And at the same time, get some sort of like feedback and like some sort of someone validating my business model. Fantastic. So when did the idea first pop into your head about foodology? Walk us through the process of thinking through the business model and saying this has potential and then how you got to the point where you went ahead and, and got funding. Yeah, so the first thing I'll say is I'll, I've always loved food. I've always loved restaurants and I've always loved cooking. Even actually before doing my industrial engineering career in, in Los Andes, I studied cooking for six months in Italy. So it's something that has always inspired me. So I've always like looking into that world more as a hobby than anything else, but always interesting and in how it worked. And I was fortunate enough that, that HBS is one class on the restaurant industry last semester. And obviously given the passion I have for the industry, I decided to take that class. And that's where I started like building the idea of foodology. I was also fortunate enough that my co-founder was also in that class. So we started thinking about it even from back then and there together. And um, I'll say basically what like led us to the idea of foodology was that we were seeing three things. The first one was that the delivery trend is growing at like huge uh, scale and like a super fast pace. Um, and it's not only in the US, it's a worldwide trend, right? Um, we had lived it here in Colombia with the birth of Rappi and then it's gotten throughout the years. So that was like the first thing we noticed. The second thing we noticed is traditional restaurants have done very little to like serve this new channel in a, in a, in a better way or like with a better customer experience and have done very little in changing their operations and changing the way they market themselves to clients. Um, and, and that what that has caused is for people to have not that great delivery experiences because traditional restaurants are just trying to fit their original core business into a new delivery channel without actually giving it some thought. And then I'd say the last thing we learned about in that class was how hard it was to have a restaurant and how hard it was to have good margins in a restaurant, how big the capital investment is, how risky the business is if you don't find the right concept, the right location, and like a bunch of other like variables that can make you easily and quickly fail. Um, and taking all of this like into consideration, we thought, how can we build a different business model that better serves delivery clients, takes advantage of the like growth of delivery companies, but also like kind of makes what's not great about restaurants, not a problem, like the big capital investments and the high risk. And that's how we ended up with the idea of Foodology. So basically at Foodology, what we're doing is we're creating virtual restaurant brands. That means these are brands that you can only find on the delivery apps or on like our own e-commerce. And, and we're operating these brands from what uh, Lena mentioned, dark kitchens, which have a ton of names, dark kitchens, ghost kitchens, cloud kitchens. 
they're they're basically all the same. But basically, what what they are is they it's a kitchen that has no storefront, does not like cater to clients a on the on the on the store, and it's optimized in every way in its operations to be quick and to produce food that is really good for delivery. And by doing all of this, basically, we were taking advantage of the first two things we noticed, and then we were solving for things as high capital investments and high risk. Um, and that's basically how the idea was born. It was interesting enough that at that point when, we, when I started thinking about the idea, I still had in my head that I was gonna do this as a side business because I was going back to McKinsey to work as a consultant. And so was Juan Guillermo, he was going back to Boston Consulting Group to work as a consultant as well. Uh, but I feel that the more we got into the idea and the more we got into analyzing how big the potential of the market was, the more we were inspired to actually make this our full-time life mission. And that happened like right after graduation when we decided to do this. So what month, give me, give me an exact time frame of, of the month that you're in at this point. So we graduated May last year, got back to Colombia, say June, July. And July was when we decided to start the company. It's still kind of like thinking that if it didn't work, we might go back to consulting. Um, and by October, we were operational. We launched the business with four brands and one kitchen. And I'd say fast forward today, we have eight brands in seven kitchens. Six of them are in Bogota and one of them is in Medellin. Right. That is very fast, right? I mean, to go from concept to what I'll call a minimal viable product, which we'll say is like your first kitchen and your first set of products, how did you develop the, um, the brand and is a brand like a, a cuisine type for you? So, yeah, it was pretty fast, but we wanted kind of like to like learn fast, fail fast kind of mindset. Uh, so, yeah, brand can basically either be like a cuisine or a cuisine at a certain price point. So I'll give you an example. When we first started, we decided it was um, crucial for Foodology to be super optimal in our asset utilization. So we wanted to have sales throughout the whole day. So we knew that we wanted to sell breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Even though the breakfast market is 3% of the whole market, but we knew we wanted to be as optimal as possible. So we launched two breakfast brands, which you might think it might be the same cuisine, but actually one of our breakfast brands is more like, uh, like an American kind of brand where we have things that are very trendy, like avocado toast and acai bowls and oatmeal pancakes. And then we have a more like Colombian brand where we have arepas and calentado and caldo. And we launched them at different price points because at that point we were just experimenting. And this is what we do at Foodology all the time. We're kind of like a brand concept laboratory where we we're trying to figure out what is that's missing in the market and what is that consumers are looking for. So the Colombian brand was pretty massive, lower price, while the Amer like American breakfast brand, trendy brand was high priced. The menu was all in English, which is something kind of weird in Colombia, but we wanted to make it like ultra trendy. 
And additional to those two, we launched a Tex-Mex brand that makes burritos and tacos. And we launched a salad brand, very inspired in like the sweet green concept in the US, which once we got back from Boston, Hungry Jam and I kept craving and couldn't find a good offer. Fantastic. So you are now, you know, operational in October. When did you get the funding, your initial funding, and where did that come from? So before being operational, we set out to um, get some funding, not like a huge amount, but something that would help us get, get us up, like up and started. So we did family and friends, and we got also a private investor um, for like a small amount, but something that definitely helped us get off the ground and helped us get to the point where we had three kitchens. And right. at that point was when we entered the new ventures competition. And after that was when we said, this is the time for fundraising. And the new ventures competition was that grant? Yeah, so we got, we got a grant from the new ventures competition, um, $75,000. But more than yeah. that, what we got was a ton of exposure to- to investors and they were asking us like, when are you fundraising? And honestly, we were gonna start fundraising late August and this was April. And we were like, well, let's just jump on this momentum and, and start fundraising now. So you went from friends and family to some grant dollars, which allowed you to do your seed round exactly. all within a couple of months. <laughs> yeah, within I'd say like eight months. Yeah. So just for the record, for everybody watching, this is an amazing and almost impossible experience, right? I mean, the acceleration that you guys had is so amazing. And what's interesting to me is that, Daniela, can you hear me? You're frozen. You're I can back. hear you. Okay. okay, perfect. So now you're operational in October and are you done with your seed round? I'd just like to get the timing right for everybody because I think this is so important for any startup to understand the planning that fundraising typically takes. And sometimes, you know, one thing hits after another and it goes beyond perfect, right? But then, which is where I was going with my question, so now you're operational in October. When did you get a sense that COVID was going to potentially start to affect the world, right? When did you and your co-founder sit down and say, uh-oh, something's happening? And what was that moment like for you? Sure, so I feel we were kind of in Colombia, like late to COVID. I feel like now looking back, January should have been like a big signal, but it wasn't. And we started like realizing what COVID meant like mid-March, to be honest. So mid-March, okay. everything was going great. We were growing tons. And then suddenly they told us COVID. And at that point, we didn't know the rules of the game. We'd heard a delivery in Japan had grown tons. We'd heard Peru had closed all delivery operations the government had closed. And at that point, we actually, we were pretty scared. We had no idea what our government was going to decide whether they were gonna ask everyone in delivery to shut down or whether they were gonna let food delivery continue and groceries delivery continue. So at that point is when we said, oh God, we're gonna have to be ready to make quick decisions based on like daily information. 
Um, and yeah, that was like, I'd say mid-March. We, we won the new venture competitions late April and we started mm -hmm. fundraising late April. And I, I'll definitely say we were lucky in the sense that in the Colombian case, the government decided to continue delivery operations, which allowed us to continue growing through COVID and even gave us a little boost, I'd say, and allowed us to like become one of those like anti-COVID business. But again, being truly honest, it could have gone the other way if the government had decided to shut down delivery operations. So as a co-founder at that moment, when you had to wait to either pivot your business, push harder because you got an opportunity to build or grow, right? Did you call investors? Like what decisions that co-founders or what plans did you set? Did you have an A and a B plan and you waited? Did you make some phone calls ahead of time? Was there some contingency in place? As a co-founder, what was that process like? So I say the first thing we did is we called a couple of companies of friends of ours or people that were working in Spain. Because we knew they were like two months ahead of us in this pro pro problem. And we like kind of wanted to get their vision on like how companies were operating over there. What were people, our first COVID scare within our company, we almost like had, a, like <laughs> we didn't know if we should close the whole thing. like. So we started calling and asking people, like, what are you guys doing when one of your employees gets COVID? Like, what should we be doing? Because at that point, the Colombian government had not published one single guideline on this. And we knew it was coming at us, basically. Um, then we, like, literally decided to wait and see and not take any quick decisions. And I, I, I guess Harvard was also pretty generous. They gave us a class on, like, crisis. Um, like crisis mode reactions. And the first thing they said was like, in a crisis, you need to like take information as it comes in and try to take decisions with the best information you have, but like do not take before you have like any information at all. And we just waited and see, to see what the government was gonna say, to see how things were gonna turn up. And then we started making changes to the business slowly. Like for example, we, um, got a, a bus for all our, all our employees so we wouldn't have to take public transportation. We changed our packaging, but slowly we did, we did things like as we saw them evolving. But sure, I, I'm not gonna lie. One of our like big concerns was like, are we gonna have to like put everyone on a furlough and like just shut down operations and wait for four months to see what happens. So I love that you mentioned your employees first, right? That you looked out for the safety and the security of your employees. How many um, employees do you have now? Right now we have around 73 employees. How many? 73. 73. That is an astounding number. I mean, Daniela, what you're doing for your local economy is phenomenal, particularly at a time where restaurants and the service economy are suffering so much. So that I, I commend you. Um, I'm going to remind everyone that they can ask questions in the chat so that um, other entrepreneurs that are going through this can get some, uh, some words of advice from Daniela and her team here as we're going through this. Um, so I, I love that you went employee first. That's phenomenal. And the safety of them packaging, of course, for your clients. And then that you had the ability to go back to your network, in this case, it's Harvard 
to get some additional support. And then you went to like-minded businesses to get support too. So I think those were phenomenal tips. Um, so moving back into the business management side, you now have your seed round. What are the primary use of funds? I imagine expansion is your number one goal here since you have such an amazing vision. Talk to me a little bit about the strategic thinking as a founder that you're doing for expansion. And what I'd love to understand is with COVID and the risk still looming, if you will, on how the, I mean, Colombia just opened up today, right? Yeah. Yesterday. <laughs> um, I know because I want to go buy my ticket to go home, like ASAP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, with the, the risk always looming that things could shift, how are you managing your expansion plans and how, without giving me dollars and maybe percentages, what does that look like for you? Sure. So the first thing I'll say, and people usually tell me like, oh, you're so lucky, like your business is great in COVID. But I actually believed in my business way before COVID was even like a possibility. Um, and I, I still feel that the fundamentals are there and that it's a great business with or without COVID. So right now, what we're doing is trying to continue expanding, following the same business plan we've always uh, been following, which includes going to other cities in Colombia. We just last month launched Medellin. Um, continue expanding throughout Colombia. And then our, in our plans is in within the next five months to go to Mexico as well. And yeah, things are gonna be shifting and we are gonna be out every time like trying to gather all the information possible and making decisions. But we think uh, even though this has been very hard on the restaurant industry, uh, many restaurants have been able to like turn around and start doing delivery, start thinking about this channel about something important. And we have the advantage that we had already been doing that. So we now have the advantage to go even a little bit faster than we were going before uh, because for people who are now pivoting into this, it's gonna take them some time to like figure out the, the business model, figure out their economics, et cetera. So we're like a step ahead. So we're trying to take a little bit of advantage and to like um, kind of like start scaling up a little bit faster. And if I just ask, what would be your advice to take the plunge to start a business idea? Um, I'll let you go ahead and answer that because something you just said is so important and ties really well into that question. So I'll let you answer it and then I'll make a comment. Okay, so I think it's it's a big decision and I'll, I'll be honest, it's a decision that, that was hard for me to take because on the other side, I have like the good corporate job, like stable job. So I say two things actually led me to take the plunge. The first one was that I was absolutely passionate about the industry I was going into. Like I was completely fascinated with the restaurant industry and the, like everything related to food. And I think that's super important because as an entrepreneur, you end up working 24 seven. It better be something you like and something you enjoy because otherwise you're more, most probably gonna be very tired and very miserable. And then the second thing I'd say is I, I'm super passionate, but I'm also like pretty like a rational engineer kind of person. So I'd say it's very important to actually look into like the size of the market and what you can actually build and what the economics look like for 
traditional players and not only like take the plunge based on like a passion, but also like actually take a moment to analyze how big the opportunity can be. Because um, I think you, you, you need a little bit of both. You cannot be an entrepreneur only based on numbers and, oh, I see a market opportunity, I'm going to do it. Because you do need the passion, but the passion itself sometimes is not enough to build a good business. So for me, it's like trying to look for a mix of those two, like when it makes sense as in a business model, but also something that you are really passionate about. Agreed. And I think, Daniela, what you said earlier that ties into that, and that's why I was glad that question popped in, was you said, you know, I, I had my business plan. I had the fundamentals ready. COVID did not necessarily create the business, right? You were already heading in that direction, and you're following your plan. It's not that as a startup, plans don't shift. And again, being in crisis mode and waiting for something to change at a government level to potentially take you in a different direction, you can't help, right? But you did the homework, right? You did your fundamentals, you looked at your market opportunity. And I think for, and, and Eureka, where I'm working, that's exactly what we teach, right? Is like, what's that fundamental thinking that you have to do to confirm that your business plan has a chance to make it, right? And so I love that you said that. We had the fundamentals, we followed the plan, and now we've got you know, an expansion um, opportunity. What, what um, key performance indicators are you looking at? Or, you know, what are your key metrics that you're measuring for expansion? You know, X percent growth. Um, you mentioned Mexico. Like what, ha uh, what decision process did you go through? And how are you tracking to those goals or those numbers? I think that's an important thing to to explain to other entrepreneurs as well. Sure. So like going back into the business, I, I say our business is a business in which you need a lot of presence. Um, so basically like the first thing we, we always do when we try to analyze uh, the potential in a country or in a city is we look at how many kitchens do we need to actually cover the delivery radius of like the whole city, right? And that's basically what guides our expansion plan. We say Bogota is a great opportunity. It's a market of this many millions of dollars in delivery. And to cover it, we would need seven kitchens like in these different neighborhoods to basically cover all of it. And the same analysis we've been doing for other cities in Colombia and for other countries as well. So our main KPI is the number of kitchens we have. And that's basically what like guides our expansion plan. Okay. Uh, then within each kitchen, we definitely have metrics such as same store sales, right? And metrics such as customer retention and like repurchase uh, and, and additional to that, a bunch of operational metrics. But the, I'd say the ones we, we like, the guide our expansion process is our number of kitchens in each city and then the sales per kitchen. How much time are you as co-founder spending on marketing, right? Because you're new in the, in the field, you're expanding. How are you managing the marketing side? Do you have a third party doing it? Is that one of the 73 or a team of 73? Tell me about your team composition within that group of 73. Not group, right? Crowd. <laughs> so I'll say most of the 73 are actually cooks. 
cooked okay our like average kitchen has eight people right now we have seven kitchens and then we have two like production facilities where like the bulk of um many of the ingredients and processes are, are done and then i don't have the exact number but our kind of corporate team is around 13 people and now three more in Medellin. Uh, and out of those 13 people, I'd say four of them are dedicated to marketing, including Juan Guillermo, uh, my co-founder, which is dedicated 100% to marketing. So Got I'd it. say it is a very important effort. Okay. Um, and then your other question, we've tried like a lot. We've tried uh, hiring an agency. We've tried a lot of in-house work. Uh, we've like tried to figure out what's, what works best for us. Great. What, um, how are you, somebody asked this and, and it's a great question, you know, what's the most challenging aspect of managing to 73 employees? Do you have a, a regional manager that, you know, goes around to all the kitchens to guarantee consistency? Talk to us a little bit about how you've set up uh, success across all those kitchens and consistency and management. Sure. I, I think that is the biggest challenge for sure. Uh, and the way we've set it up is actually in each um, city, we have like a quality control person who is a very experienced chef and they will visit at least once a week, each of the kitchens and the production centers. And what they are um, in charge of is actually the training and the quality of the products. And then in each of the cities, we also have like a procurement and inventory manager and like uh, basically a city manager, which like focuses on the commercial part of like moving the brands in that city. And this is something we've figured out with time. Like just launching Medellin, we had to like sit down and think like, we're, we can't be there all the time. So how are we gonna structure a team in Medellin that can actually like take on and grow the operation while we are like just looking at it at a more high level? Tell me a little bit about managing a company in Colombia since you've had experience in, you know, meeting and working with entrepreneurs, both on the state side and in Colombia. And I would also like to hear a little bit about how you feel in dealing with, because I, you know, I have a business in Colombia and I find banking, the banking experience to be very frustrating. So give us a little bit of insight on the Colombia versus you know, American entrepreneurship environment and where you would like to see Colombian entrepreneurship change or where you think it's going really well. I'd love your thoughts on that. So I'd say first on the people side, um, I think Colombia is still like a step behind maybe the U.S. in considering startups a great place to work. I'd say millennials are changing that, but still at least uh, more senior people still have like their doubts about whether they should join or not a startup. Because uh, there's been very few like highly successful cases and things like stock options, people don't really understand here. Uh, and things like being the number three employee in a company, like still don't have that much value in, in, in a place like Colombia where the more experienced people still might be wanted to keep their corporate jobs and not like plunging into um, into startups. I'd say it's more like the more successful startups, I'd say it's more people who 
actually had a little bit more of like international exposure that have actually seen how fabulous it is and how good good things can go when they go well it, that are actually the people launching startups and being able to recruit people that have like the same mentality and then on the other side of your question about like entities and stuff i think the government has like done tremendous efforts to help entrepreneurs they have a bunch of programs etc but i think the government what or what colombia hasn't been good at is like transferring that like pride and the the feeling of wanting to help an entrepreneur to like the rest of the entities to like yeah. banks insurance companies um i mean basically just about any supplier you want to work with like startups are still seen as like something that's risky that's Right. Like yep. you, it's small. Like, why am I paying attention to this? So things like as opening a bank account or getting a credit card are very difficult. Yep. Yeah, and I had the same experience. And having opened companies on both sides now, um, I keep saying to my operations manager in Colombia, like, "You're kidding! You're kidding!" Right? Because there's so many hurdles. Even the, and I think this is another exciting opportunity for all of you, especially your company with, you know, you're using apps, you're using technology to drive revenue, right? And when you're still dealing with um, older thinking on the corporate side, where you still have to physically go to the bank to do so many things, you still have to physically meet with people to do so much. I imagine that for a young entrepreneur, again, who's had experience on both sides, that's a very difficult thing. So I love your advice. I'm gonna call it advice that Lena can take back to the government side around taking their initiative for entrepreneurs and not just thinking about training the entrepreneurs themselves, but also all of the associated services that go with running a company. Exactly. It's like trying to make big corporations change their mentality about who is a good client and like trying to like see potential clients so things like i don't know like for example lawyers or like legal services in the us like the top firms have like inter like entrepreneur programs where your fear fees are waived until you raise your first um like fundraising and something like that in Colombia, you go and talk to like many of the like top law firms and they're just like charging retainers that are like ridiculous for a startup. And they, it's like a lack of vision into my small clients today are going to be my huge clients tomorrow. Yeah, there's a great question in the Q&A. Um, I'm going to skip over there to make sure we cover it because we're about 20 minutes and I want to make sure we're involving everyone. Um, so somebody's asking about the actual supply chain, right? What does your supply chain management look like, particularly when things were quarantined and shut down in Bogota and now you're entering Medellin and again, things are opening up. What was that like at first managing through all of that? So I'll say at the beginning of COVID, it was a little scary because a bunch of our suppliers decided to shut down. Um, and not because they could not operate, because honestly, the government has always said like food production and food suppliers have permission to operate, but more because 
suddenly out of we had a guy who sells his orange juice uh, out of his 350 clients he was left with five so at that point it was it made more sense for him to like shut down the operation and wait than serve those five clients and i was like one of those five clients who was like where am i going to get my orange juice now um so it was hard and we had to do a lot of like figuring out who was still operating and looking into it. We, we usually have like a, like a, no, like an A choice of supplier, a B choice and a C choice because people do run out of things. Even like, oh, oh, this is funny, but Coca-Cola ran out of like Coca-Cola zero for like three weeks, like last month. I was like, how can this happen? <laughs> like, yeah. are you kidding me? Um, but, but I mean, you have to have a, you're in a toilet paper in America, so who knows? <laughs> exactly. So honestly, you have to have like other options and be prepared. So what we've done is we have like multiple suppliers for the same thing. Obviously, one that we work with the most. Okay. Again, most suppliers have been able to work through COVID, so it has. At the very beginning, it was a little stressing, but then it like started normalizing. Um, it's funny though now that we're expanding to the rest of Colombia trying to figure out which of those suppliers have national presence versus local presence, trying to like uh, figure out how we're gonna um, kind of like standards and quality having to change to other suppliers in different regions of the country. That's great. When, you know, earlier on, we talked about um, consistency in quality across so many kitchens. Um, Charles is asking, what kind of agreements have you put in place? Are the brands yours? Are the brands yours and some of them are somebody else's ideas? So how are you coming up with the brands? Are they 100% owned? And then how are you maintaining the quality across these different high-end American food versus your mid or lower uh, entry point arepa? How are you managing quality and consistency there? So to answer your first question, out of our eight brands, um, seven of them are completely ours. Uh, we created them from scratch, basically. Our eighth brand, which is Cafe Amor Perfecto, it's a like a well-known coffee brand here in Colombia. Um, we actually partnered with them first to be the coffee in our breakfasts, uh, and then uh, they asked us like if we could actually manage their delivery. And well, we say why not? We have all your products. We have all your product line we might as well um, try a different partnership style, which has been super interesting because there are startups in the US. There's a big one called Ketopi, which is actually doing this business model and it's operating um, delivery for existing brands. So it was like a nice way to start experimenting into like maybe adjacent business models that we might try down the line uh, as we grow. And then in the consistency part, again, this is one of the biggest challenges what we've done is like have a very, very um, like strict training program. People, when we open a new kitchen, all the employees of that kitchen start one month before the kitchen is open and they go to existing um, kitchens and work there for a month before going to the new kitchen. At least in Bogota, every time we had a new kitchen, it was never 100% the new team. We like sort of mixed old people with new people and like try to like, um, mix all the new ones within all the other kitchens. It's easier as now we have seven kitchens. So a new kitchen would mean only one new person per kitchen. 
Um, but in Medellin, we started training from zero again because we couldn't be moving people from Bogota to there. But I met, I was about to say, you probably brought a manager over and then you started setting up your team that way. Exactly. The, these dark or cloud kitchens, how are you identifying them? Uh, somebody's asking, would you recommend a restaurant owner open a dark kitchen? So how are you approaching the finding a kitchen, negotiating for it? Tell us how that works. So I'd say the most important thing about like setting up a, a cloud kitchen or a dark kitchen is like you have to figure out what um, coverage you want to have within the city. And for that, it's, it's not that hard. Basically, if you have already data from your restaurant, you can figure out where your clients live, uh, where would be the best place to like cover the most area. And then also, like if you even talk to like the delivery apps, like they'll let you know like where are like the hot spots and the hot zones for delivery and you can make sure to be nearby. Then when you're looking for a kitchen, there's actually like two types of ways you can go. One of them is go to like a cloud kitchen hub, which there, there are plenty of now. And it's companies that are basically working on setting up the real estate for companies like me or like any other traditional restaurant to rent. And the space is set up. So you just like bring in your equipment. They thought about like the, the floor has to be approved by the like um, health regulation and they thought about the lightning and, or you can actually go a more traditional way with which we've also done, which is like find a real estate space anywhere. It doesn't have to be the most pricey street. It actually can be the ugly street within the cool neighborhood because you don't need like foot traffic. Um, and then just do like the minimal renovations you need to get it up and running. And, and that's like the two ways you can do it. I'd say I'd recommend restaurant owners to first, before even setting up a dark kitchen, completely use the capacity of their actual kitchens. But I will definitely say that they have to figure out a way to make their operation um, work for delivery in the sense that they have to have a space where the delivery people come and pick up. So like change your layout in order to have that and not to bother your current customers who are coming to sit in. Um, change your inside operations to know who is gonna do the delivery orders and who is gonna cook the, like, the customer orders within the store. Because at the end of the day, you have like this invisible line of people and other people are waiting and, and you don't want to like create a bad experience for the dining in customer. Uh, and why do I say this? Uh, that first I would use all my capacity is because once you set up a dark kitchen and say you are a restaurant that um, that sells burgers, so basically you sell a lot Friday night and Saturday night, you might not be fully utilizing um, the dark kitchen you set up. And because your revenues come only from delivery apps, it might not be enough to like actually have a whole team there of people and like actually pay rent. So. It kind of obviously depends on volume, but if I was a, if I already had a restaurant, I would first use the kitchen I already have. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. There's so many restaurant owners still, even here, just struggling to figure out how to get by. Um, and even as things open up because of the state, the uh, spacing issues, 
they're just not using their restaurant to full capacity. And, um, you know, I fear what, what those numbers will look like at the, uh, the end of this. Um, I want to get back to mindset a little bit. So what does your typical day look like? Um, are you working from home? Do you guys have an office space? Tell us a little bit more about the day-to-day -day of the corporate team. And um, particularly because, again, you know, I was looking at a study that says that from Rockstart Incubator in Columbia, they said that most seed or pre-seed startups in Columbia are taking about two years to get things going. Um, and again, you guys are an amazing case where you were able to move so quickly. So tell me what the day-to-day -day looks like during COVID, you know, times of COVID for you right now. So we are every day at the office, to be honest, wearing our mask and everything, but we are every day there. It, our office, interestingly enough, is we have like this big warehouse and we have our production facility. We have one of our kitchens there and on the second floor, and it's like a mezzanine, we have our corporate team. So we literally see everything that's going on. We see everything that's cooking. We go downstairs and see what orders are going out. How are they packaging them? Um, at the very beginning, we brought all the training teams there so they could also like get to know us. And I'd say obviously it has changed somewhat my day-to-day -day from day one to now. Uh, day one, I'd say was highly operational. Like I cooked things, I've packed stuff, I've dealt with uh, couriers. Uh, I'd say for the first eight months, maybe 10, my co-founder, Juan Guillermo and I were every Saturday and Sunday working at one of the kitchens as basically in, just to figure out if things were working out fine and how to like make them better. Um, now we, like last two months, we focused a little bit more on fundraising um, but my day-to-day -day is every day at the office. I'm basically very in charge of ops, which includes procurement inventories and the actual operation of the kitchens. So I'm there daily, just looking, visiting kitchens, um, trying to figure out better ways to do things. And at the same time, trying to push for growth, opening new kitchens. The, um, so the facility that you're working from is in essence your, your, where you create, where your team gets together, where everything initiates, and then you're expanding across all of the other kitchens, right? Exactly. Okay. Um, what are you doing to, somebody's asking, Nicolas is asking, you know, what happens, how fast are you catching bad performance? And if you've had that in the time you've been in business, how have you remedied that? Well, I guess, I don't know if the question means bad performance as in like. Um, I, so you mentioned a couple of KPIs, right? You mentioned um, retention, you mentioned quality. So when, when does that monitoring hit your desk or whose desk does it hit? And what happens for you as a co-founder or a manager to then go remedy that problem? Of course. So I'd say um, the KPI we follow the most to like see if things are working or not is actually the um, like the same store sales, which we actually check daily, to be honest. Um, and once we start seeing a trend, we like 
take it to the whole team, especially the marketing team, and try to figure out what's going on. And we also take it into the operational team and see, is it the waiting times are too long? Are we getting too many complaints? Uh, did we somehow lose rating on the app? And then um, is that what's going on? So basically that that's where we try to correct, but it's like we see it there when we react based on sales. Okay, so anything that starts to drop off, that's where you're gonna go and hone in to see what's going on. Exactly. Have you had a lot of that? Do you have stories to tell or not yet? So um, definitely uh, the first two weeks of COVID, we had a drop in sales of 40%. Weirdly enough, then it was a ton of growth, but the first two weeks of like COVID announced by the government with quarantine, I think people had no idea what to do with their lives. Like they went to supermarkets and like bought the whole store and then they had a ton of food in their house. They didn't know how long this was gonna last. They obviously the first two weeks tried to cook everything for themselves and then realized they don't have the time to do that. But those first two weeks, we definitely, when we saw the drop, we went directly into like, what are we gonna do? So for example, we launched a kind of like what we call our COVID brand, which is like very like home comfort food style, which is like on the lower price, cheaper to like try to compete with home cooking. Um, we invested a little bit more on marketing we started talking to companies to see what they were gonna do now about like the employees usually maybe got their food at like the like the company cafeteria, like what were their thoughts on that now? And that was like the way we reacted. But those first two weeks were definitely like tough. And like, we were trying to figure out what the market was telling us. Great. Well, we're down to the last few minutes and I always like to close with, um, questions that will inspire other future entrepreneurs to dive in and, and do this. Why don't you give us um, what your, I think the toughest experience you've had so far. I think a drop in 40% is a heck of an example already. Um, on the first couple of days, what do you think has been the toughest as a co-founder in Colombia trying to do this? Um, and how, you know, what's your advice on getting through those tough moments? Sure. So I think that was one of the toughest, but to be very honest, the toughest for both my co-founder and I um, was when one of our employees um, decided to make up that she had COVID. And this was at the very beginning. And she um, falsified a, a, a test and stuff. And that was a very hard moment for us because we realized we had to work harder on company culture and on how we wanted people to be honest, to be respectful, to be truthful, to like appreciate their job. And maybe we were like, we think we're like really good bosses. Like we have a lot of benefits for our employees, but we, we, we sat down and thought like, I think we need to write this down and actually be super clear about what this company's culture is. And that was a very tough moment because first we were scared. We didn't know what COVID actually meant. We didn't know if at the beginning, we didn't know it was a fake test. So we were scared that everyone had gotten sick. Um, 
And then when we knew it was a fake test, then how were we going to tell everyone about it? And it was a like a very hard moment. Like we had like we couldn't sleep like for two days. I think neither Michael Vander and me, we truly could not sleep trying to like get our heads around first the possible chance of like one of our employees having COVID and our like lack of knowledge in the subject. And then second, when we figured out it was not true, like how could someone do this to us, like to their company? But yeah, that, that was like a big, um, I'd say disappointment that we, that, that was, I'd say our toughest time for sure. Like sales, you can get back up, but like culture is something that building is very hard. So what did you do? How did you distribute culture when you don't have a central location, right? How are you communicating that? I imagine training is one, but how is that being passed through as you expand? So I'd say what the you first thing do? was we formalized it. Like we wrote, sat down and we wrote down our values. That's great. And that, so you're that, on with that. Yeah. And then we actually talked to everyone and told them about our values. And now it's the first thing we we do, or like we even have a video now, the first thing we share with each new hire. Now they're in each of the kitchens printed on a, I'm stuck on their wall. And we try to like basically live by them and take our decisions on them. But I think just even writing them down and letting everybody know what they are made, made a big difference. Well, Daniela, thank you for being brave enough to create this company for the jobs that you're providing in our country. It's really exciting to see young entrepreneurs build their future empires inside of Colombia. We're really excited. If people want to order, what is the, uh, the website and where do they find you? So if you want to order today, the best way to find us is on Rappi. And our top three brands are Burritos and Co, Brunch and Munch, and Avocalia, which are the Tex-Mex brand, the high-end breakfast brand, and the salad brand. I really recommend them. Well, I look forward to uh, trying it out when I go to Medellin in December. Lena, thank you for having us. Thanks, thank Lena. Thank you. I no, thank you, uh, you and, and Marcela, that we have an amazing conversation. Uh, and the purpose of this uh, webinar series is to inspire another entrepreneurs and other Colombians that they want to make a change, not just in COVID-19, but uh, in the world uh, during all, all their career. Um, I'm hungry now. I, yeah. I wish I could be in Bogota or Medellin so I can please order, uh, order from one of your restaurants. Um, and I hope to have you, Daniela, again soon. So you can give us an update of what is happening For with sure. Kudology and what is the, the, uh, the expansion that you mentioned in, in, in Mexico, that it could be another great uh, program. To all the participants in our webinar, thank you again. Our last webinar for this series of uh, innovation during COVID-19 is going to be on October 5th. We will have a conversation with the founders of the Colombian startup Harper, which is a digital hospital. Hope you can join us. And again, thank you, Marcela, Daniela, and everybody who uh, joined us today. Bye. Bye, Marcela and Lina. It was a pleasure meeting you. Bye. Bye. -bye.